Thank you for being here this morning. Why don't you take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts chapter 12. The sovereignty of God is uh, an important concept. It's an important theological truth that scripture speaks so much about. If I had to kind of boil the, the, the definition down, what the sovereignty of God is at its most fundamental level, it would be that God is in absolute, perfect, and complete control of all things. There is nothing that is outside of the scope of his control. But the concept of God's sovereignty is one that most Christians adhere to. They believe, uh, at least in theory, and it's, it's easy, we know this, to see somebody who's struggling, maybe with the circumstances of life, maybe they're going through uh, an incredible amount of hurt or pain or sorrow, and it's easy for Christians. You ever, you ever had somebody come alongside you and, and say, hey, I know you're going through a tough time, but it's okay, you know what, God's sovereign. Though it's true, in the moment it doesn't feel true, does it? And and though that that is true, it's absolutely true, in the moment, oftentimes what we experience as Christians is that it's difficult to translate what we know into practical everyday life, how we live, how we truly embrace that theological truth. And here in Acts chapter 12, God is giving us a picture of what divine sovereignty, of what his control looks like in the life of an individual and in the life of the early church. And it's incredibly important to have this robust picture of God's divine control over all things because we know this, we know this life has ups and downs. It has hills and it has valleys. There are many trials and tribulations that we must go through in this life, especially, especially, listen, if we are followers of Jesus Christ. Here, God has placed this passage right here to remind us that he is in control, yes, in the good times, but even more helpfully in the hard times. When things are good, we can trust that God is in control, and when things feel like they're crumbling and falling apart, we can know, too, that he is in control, and we can trust him in those times. It is easier, we know this by experience, to trust God when things are good. It's so easy when, when everything seems like it's going smoothly, our spiritual lives are robust and they're on, we're on fire for the Lord and everything in life just seems to be going so well. But what happens when the winds of this life begin to blow? What happens when the rain begins to fall? What happens when the waters begin to rise? What happens when the ground begins to shake? Well, The good news is that even in those times, God is in control. God is in control, first, I want you to see this, even in my darkest hour. We pick up in chapter 12 of the book of Acts that we've been studying through, and it says this in verse one, follow along with me. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, every once in a while, I love it, I'll get people who will, will tell me, hey, wouldn't it be great? Like, we need to get back to the, uh, the church in Acts. We need to be just like the church in Acts. And I wanna say to them, have you read the book of Acts? Here there is, in the life of the early church, think about it, the early church is about 10, maybe 12 years old at this point, and here we see this, the tides are coming and they're turning against them once more. There is an unbelievable resurgence of persecution as we see here that Herod the king is laying violent hands on those who belong to the church. This is not good times in the life of the church. This is horrific times. Herod is, uh, by the way, not a name, it's a title. It's the title of the the one who is ruling over uh, Jerusalem at this time, and we know this in the Bible, that there are a few Herods that we're made aware of. The first Herod is, uh, you you probably remember reading of him if you've read through the Gospels, Uh, the very early stages of the New Testament, when when Jesus was gonna be born, what did that first Herod do? He he went out and he tried to kill all the, the babies, right, all the baby boys, and his name was Herod the Great, and just trust me, he wasn't that great. The second Herod we read about is the one that John the Baptist confronted. Remember, he confronted him in his sexual immorality with his his brother's wife, Herodias, and John the Baptist called him a fox. And John the Baptist uh, tried to persuade him of the truth, and he actually liked hearing from John the Baptist, but we know this, that Herodias uh, sent her niece, and she was dancing before Herod and pleased him so much that he said, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom, what do you want? And As her mother persuaded her to do, she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter, and that's exactly what he did. He he killed John the Baptist. Not great either. The third third Herod we see here is the one we're looking at here, which is Herod Agrippa I. 
Herod Agrippa here, he is a really popular, or at least he wanted to be early on. He actually tried to woo the Jews. He wanted them to love him, to value him, and he did a really, really great job at that. And we see that that's even his intention in the very first couple of verses here. He was popular amongst the Jews, and here's what he does to kind of promote his popularity, to increase his popularity. He begins to take down the leadership of the church. So not only is he laying violent hands on some who belong to the church, we see specifically who he goes after. It says in verse two, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. He executed, he he becomes the first person to martyr an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is James, the brother of John, the two sons of thunder. He's a significant leader in the life of the church. And you say, well, why, why would he go after him? Well, well, he goes after the church at whole, but just remember the reason that James is executed here, and, and the picture is violent, it's gory, it's graphic, that we're supposed to see that this is a horrific time in the life of the church. This is the church's darkest hour. They have not seen a period this dark yet. And so we see here that James is taken out And he's taken out because he is a believer in the way. He is a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has given his life to Jesus Christ. He has seen that God has sent the Messiah. Remember, the Jewish people refused to embrace the Messiah. They didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. And here comes the church, and James, foremost maybe amongst them, is declaring in Jerusalem that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited promised one. And he gave his life, he died in the place of sinners, and he rose, remember, you can just picture the apostolic preaching that he must have been declaring. He rose from the grave, and if you believe him, if you embrace him, you can have your sins forgiven, and you can be given eternal life, and as he declared the truth of Jesus Christ, he gave his life in doing so. And James's execution demonstrates that Herod Agrippa's attack against the church was so severe, it was so violent, it was ending a period of relative tranquility that had lasted about 10 years since the persecution of Stephen. If you remember the chronology here in the book of Acts, Stephen in chapter seven was killed for the faith and then Saul ravages the church, but then there's a period of relative tranquility and peace. And the church goes some time. You're kind of having a decent go at it. And, and remember what's, what's been happening here in the life of the church. It's, it's spreading, the gospel's spreading, the church is spreading. It's moved from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. The Spirit of God is empowering his servants to take the gospel further and further. And in chapter 11, we saw that the first Gentile church is launched in Antioch. See, God is doing amazing things, and we look at this and say, man, this is perfect. God's doing such incredible things, and things are so good, and then all of a sudden, everything turns on a dime. And there's a lesson here for us. Peacetime, listen, in the Christian life can end abruptly. In the life of the church, but in your life personally, maybe you've experienced, you live long enough and you've experienced this, right? There can be seasons when everything seems like it's going the way it should be. Everything feels great. And then in an instant, everything is turned upside down. I just, I love the early church's example. Everything we've seen thus far in the book of Acts reminds us that where there is relative peacetime, we need to pay attention. See, in, in peacetime, if I can call it that, we, we tend to kind of take our foot off the gas. We want to put our feet up and rest, but the early church does not give us that liberty or even that option. What we see is the early church saw that in peacetime, they viewed it as preparation time. They drew near to God. They pursued God with great fervency, with great action. And I just think maybe that's helpful as we think about summer coming up. How many of us have had good intentions? Summer's coming. We get a little bit of vacation. I'm going to pursue the Lord harder. And we get to the end of the summer and like, oh man, I really blew that. And here's the reality, look, if, if you're not pursuing God in peacetime, if you're not pursuing God when everything in your life is easy, you can't expect to cling to God when things start getting hard. If you drift from God in the hour of peace, you'll be more likely to flee from God in the hour of darkness. But listen, if you press into God where there seems to be peace, if you take advantage of that time and that opportunity, you're more likely to cling to God in that hour of darkness that you experience. Christian, don't waste your time that God has given you. Don't waste the time that he's given us as a church in this country at this time to take advantage of pursuing him with great fervency. 
James is a, an incredibly influential person in the life of the church. We've kind of grazed across that, but you can imagine that you know, James is kind of like the number three guy in the church at this point. If you read the book of Acts, you see this very clearly. At the early, in the early church, Peter's number one. Maybe John, we could argue, is number two. He's pretty prominent in the life of the early church, I imagine, too. And James is, is probably the third guy in terms of his prominence and his impact. And so what we see is that Herod goes after him. And look what it says here. It says in verse three, and when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. In other words, he says, wow, this is how they acted. You know, they, they responded when I took out James. What would they do if I take out Peter? This is a, a significant moment in the life of the church. Peter is arrested and he's placed in prison. And you'll notice that this took place during the days of unleavened bread, it says in verse three. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now, um, how many people here think that phrase, bring him out to the people, is something positive? Any show of hands? What do you think that means? That means he's going to do the very same thing with Peter that he did to James. He's going to bring him out and he's going to execute him. He's going to bring him out. He's going to parade him in front of all the people and he's going to take his head right off. And you have to notice this is so, there's a touch of irony here. I love this in the passage. This is all happening during the Passover feast, the feast of unleavened bread. And if you know anything about the biblical history, you know, in the Old Testament, you know this, that what are they celebrating at the Passover? God's great deliverance of his people, right? God's redeeming of his people from the slavery that they had in Egypt, setting them free, and here, here, here are God's servants declaring the freedom that that freedom pointed to, the greater redemption, the greater exodus that can be found in Jesus Christ. On this very occasion they're celebrating this, they're putting to death the messengers of this greater deliverance. They are rejecting right here God's great deliverance. And we see that they put him in prison. You notice there, this is interesting. They, they put over him four squads of soldiers to guard him. I mean, that's 16 soldiers. Four squads, one squad had four soldiers. 16 soldiers to guard Peter. And you're like, why, why so many soldiers? Well, listen, Peter's been in prison before, but he seems to squeeze out every time. Right, so, so you have to see, this is serious. They're like, look, I know that he's gotten himself out of prison before. We know that we've released him, but not this time. There's no way he's getting out. We've got him locked down. He's making sure that there's absolutely no way that his plan will not succeed. You have to see that. See, humanly speaking, he thinks he's got it all figured out. He thinks that he can overcome God's servants. And again, let me just, just remind you, this is the darkest hour in the life of the church up to this point. They had not experienced anything so traumatic and so horrific. And we can kind of read this and say, okay, well, James is killed and Peter's in prison. And we kind of, you know, we, we glance over that, we move on to the next thing, but we have to pause sometimes and put ourselves in the shoes of the people who would have lived at this time. You have to understand how unbelievably terrifying this would be. Can you imagine, for example, if now this Sunday you walked into church, you walked into church this Sunday and, and you found out, you heard word was traveling and spreading quickly that I had been killed earlier this week and Brian, Pastor Brian had been put in prison. And don't focus too much on the comparisons, but do you like what I did there? You guess who Pete, Brian is in that equation? And this would have been unbelievable. Just think about how you would feel right now if that was true. I mean, what? James is dead? Peter, the great, our leadership? But those who God, Jesus Christ himself, appointed to this ministry? I mean, they're being taken out? What's gonna happen to the church? Not just our local church, what's gonna happen to the mission? I mean, I mean how is everything gonna move forward if these guys are, are taken out? They've been so instrumental in the plan and purposes of God, and now they're gone. Maybe this whole thing is about to crumble. But it goes beyond that. It's not just the mission of the church that they would be thinking of. Right? Think about that. What does that mean for me? What, what, what are the Jews going to do to me when they find out that I'm one of the followers of Jesus Christ? I'm the Christian. I mean, is my life in danger now? Maybe the, the people I love and care about most, maybe my family, maybe it's all, all going to ramp up again and maybe we need to flee for our lives. You see how traumatic this would be? I mean, this is shock. This is horror. This is terrifying. 
And I think that it's a great reminder that there are seasons in life where we feel like it's our darkest hour. Where the peace that we have experienced has been replaced with pain. Our once immaculate health is replaced with the news of a cancer-ridden body. The calm is replaced with calamity. The joy of family life in one moment turns to horrific pain as a child is killed in an accident or seriously injured. The tranquility is replaced with turmoil as our finances were once strong and healthy, but now because of a collapsed economy, we're decimated. In an instant, the serenity can be replaced with suffering. Things can't get any better, and then in an instant, things feel like they can't get any worse. But I want you to notice something. In the midst of the devastation, in the midst of the suffering and the pain and the confusion, what are God's people doing? Look at verse five. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I mean, I love that. What a powerful picture of how we ought to respond to the difficult and painful circumstances of life, to the suffering that we experience, to the confusion and calamity that we can go through in this life. When everything is falling apart, God's children know that they need to be on their knees. Why? Why is this their natural response? Why does this seem to be the first inclination? Here's why, church, listen. Because they know there is a God who is in absolute, total control over all things. They know that when it seems humanly impossible, there is a God who can do the impossible. And instead, you know, here's what we do. We, we run to our own strategies, we, we, we panic, we get anxious, we try to figure things out, we try to brainstorm with people, maybe we call somebody we think has uh, you know, more knowledge than we do, when the first thing we ought to do is drop to our knees and call it to God. And here, this example is so powerful. To call out to the one who is in total control. You say, you say but they're suffering. It's their darkest hour. You telling me God's in control of this? Yes, absolutely. Listen, and in those moments, God doesn't back away from us. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't forsake us. Instead, he draws near to us. And that's the kind of father that we worship, that we serve, a God who does not leave us or forsake us, a God who pulls us in. This is such a, a sweet, sweet picture of our God I love the thought of God. Sometimes our thought of God is so small, it's so inadequate. You know, God's not like us, amen? God is not like us. God, God in these moments of suffering or these moments in our darkest hours, I mean, he's not sweating, he's not pacing the room back and forth, he's not chewing on his fingernails, he's not anxious, he's not scared, he's not confused. He's got this. Isn't that reassuring? He's got this. God rules the world with his feet up. Right? It's nothing. He's in total, absolute control. In fact, listen to this, Christian, he's allowed this. He's allowed this. Let that, that sink into your heart for a moment. All you have to do to understand this is read Hebrews chapter 12, right? Hebrews chapter 12, God, God disciplines every child whom he loves. All of God's kids are getting it, in other words. All of God's kids are gonna suffer. All of God's kids are gonna experience pain and turmoil in this life. In fact, the point of Hebrews chapter 12, part of the point is this. If you're not experiencing it, if it's not a, kind of a, a normal part of your life in one sense, listen, then maybe you're not one of God's children. And that's a terrifying thought. But somehow, I think deep down inside, we, we believe that we can somehow avoid suffering or be exempt from suffering, don't we? I mean, if we're really honest, we think, yeah, no, suffering, that's for other people. And, you know, that's for people who are really struggling with sin. And, and some of us are inclined to say, you know what? I'm one of God's special children. <laughs> not me. I, I'm not going to suffer. Me and God, me and God are tight. I mean, we are so close. I, I have such sweet fellowship with God that the apostles would only have dreamed of that. Right, like me and God, we're just so close. God loves me so much, he's not gonna let me suffer. I'm one of his really, really sweet friends. And I just wanna affirm for you this morning that listen, fellowship is not an exemption from suffering. Fellowship is not an exemption from suffering, Christian. You don't get a hall pass because you enjoy sweet fellowship with God. And by the way, I hope you do enjoy sweet fellowship with God. I hope that's true of your life. 
Some of us maybe are more inclined to say, well, you know, I serve the church. I help the widows and the orphans. I never miss a Sunday, not even on a long weekend. You know, I, I am just so faithful to the Lord in my life. I mean, how, how could I suffer? I'm so faithful to God. I'm so faithfully following him and pursuing him. And listen, faithfulness is not an exemption from suffering. It is not an exemption from suffering. Some of you are saying, well, I am so successful in ministry. And, you know, I've been in walking with the Lord for so many years. And, and I have just been maturing in an unbelievable way. In fact, my ministries are flourishing. Uh, my, my Christian life has been so fruitful. Just look at the evidence. But listen, listen, Christian, fruitfulness is not an exemption from suffering. In fact, listen, some of the most fruitful believers in the history of the church have suffered the most for Jesus Christ. Nobody gets a hall pass from the school of suffering. Nobody gets out of this. And you never get past it. You know, by the time you come out of suffering, listen, you got that peace time and get ready for the next time, right? The next bout of war to come at you. So why, why is God doing this? Like, like Hebrews 12 makes clear, because God is after our holiness and he's after our Christ-likeness. And listen, one of the greatest tools in God's tool belt for refining us and making us more into the image of his son is the chisel of suffering. And God loves to take that out and he loves to chip away at us because he wants to make us more like his son. You see, God's love is not a soft love, it's a sanctifying love. God's love isn't this kind of mushy love, it's a maturing love, right? As a parent, if, if you say you love your child and you just give them everything they want and you make their life as easy as possible and you help them avoid any kind of suffering, I mean, what are you really doing for your child? First of all, you're setting them up to have no friends. Second of all, right? Second of all, you're not preparing them for real life. They're not learning character, They're not building integrity and strength, the fortitude that is needed, listen, to go out and to face the world that we live in. As a parent, one of the most loving things you can do for your child is allow them to fall, right? Allow them to fail, allow them to hurt themselves every once in a while. I mean, I'm not talking drastic here, right? It builds them, and that's what God does for us. He he wants to use these moments in our life to expose things, to reveal things, and to chisel away at things. You really get a sense of who you are in the Lord when you see how you respond to suffering, don't you? This is how God breaks us of ourselves. God God is gracious in doing this. This is not something to be angry about. This is something to rejoice in, that God loves us so much that he would want to bring to us greater and increased joy and satisfaction in him by stripping us of ourselves to greater and greater degrees. And if you're an unbeliever here today, if you're not a Christian, let me just speak to you for a minute. Maybe you're looking at your life and maybe you're going through all kinds of different struggles and problems. Maybe that's one of the reasons you're here today. You're looking for answers and you're looking for some kind of hope or some kind of joy in the midst of life's difficulties. But can I just say that sometimes, listen, God will use these experiences in your life to actually bring you to himself. In other words, God, God oftentimes has to crack us and break us and then crush us and push us down. We hit that rock bottom place so that when our face is in the dirt, we can finally look up and see the only hope that we have in this world, which is not in ourselves, it's not in our own strength, it's not in our own resources, it's not in the satisfaction that the world can provide, it's only in the God of our salvation. This is what God might be trying to do in your life right now. See, God is in control even in your darkest hour. And that's why his people here pray. That's what we do in our darkest hour. We turn to the one who is in absolute control. Secondly, I want you to see this. God's in control even in my final hour. God's in control even in my final hour. Now, verse six picks up. It says this. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, remember what that means, right? That's not pleasant terminology there. Look at this. On that very night. Now just pause there for a second. Herod's about to bring him out on that very night. So just a quick show of hands here. You can participate with me, okay? This is engagement time. How many people think that, uh, that Peter here has just moments to live? Just a few of you? Like hours to live. 
hours to live, maybe minutes to live. Anybody here think like, he's potentially got minutes to live here? Here's, here's what you have to see. Listen, that's part of the point of this passage. This is the 11th hour. Time is running out. And here is Peter, like humanly speaking, there's no hope in the world, right? That's the whole point of this passage right here. It's on that very night. And look at this. This is so amazing. What's Peter doing on that very night? He knows he's about to be killed. Look at this. He's sleeping. He's sleeping. And this is unbelievable. He's got not months, not weeks to live, not days to live, probably not hours to live, minutes to live. And he's sleeping. How great is that? See, that's because Peter has figured out something that we so desperately need to figure out in our Christian lives, right? Here he is, he's changed to these two guards. By the way, you know, he's got guards on the outside of the doors and other gate as well. And here he is, he's chained to two guards. Now, I can imagine that that wasn't a pleasant job. And here he is, sleeping away, and, and I just, this is kind of interpretation by imagination, but I got to imagine, you know, Peter's this big burly fisherman. He is snoring away. He's getting his beauty sleep. See, so well, how can he do that? Here's why. Because he knows the God who is in control. He knows the God who's in control. And he knows, listen, he knows that he won't leave this earth one minute later or one minute before God has determined it. They're about to kill him, and he's sleeping. I can imagine, like, what is he, th- I just, I, I would love to know what he's thinking at this point. Maybe he's thinking, you know, I, I better rest up. I mean, I haven't seen Jesus in a while. I'm gonna go see him in a couple of minutes. This, we got a lot to do. He's just getting himself ready. The place is locked down. Peter's sleeping between two guards. This is not, there's no jailbreak coming, humanly speaking. It's impossible for him to get out of this situation. And by the way, this prison is horrendous. It is filthy. It's not like the prisons today, you know, where you get three square meals and a flat screen TV in your cell. This is unbelievably terrifying. It is dark. It is damp. It is cold. There is sewage running down the middle of the cell. And in the midst of this situation, in this scene, look what happens. <laughs> Verse 7. This is one of the funniest stories, by the way, in the New Testament. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Now, the word for struck there in the Greek is the same word that's used. You know when Peter, he, he struck the, the servant of the, the, the guard who came to get him, right? The, the high priest servant, sorry, Malchus. And he struck him and he cut off his ear. Like it's this violent action. So like if that's what's happening here, you can imagine this angel just appearing in his cell with a blazing light. He already doesn't know what's going on. He gave him a punch in the kidneys or something. You know, like get up, man. Like let's go. There's a sense, there's a sense of urgency here. This is all working on God's timeline, and so he, he strikes him and he gets up and, and boom, instantly the chains fall off. Can you say miracle? Like, this is un- just. He has no clue. You can imagine being woken up like this. No clue what's going on. He's sleeping peacefully, dreaming of seeing Jesus and bam, just these, these shackles come falling off. He's groggy and confused. Look at verse eight. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. Like, come on, what are you doing, Peter? We got, we got to get going. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. And here it is. Look at this. And he did not know that what, <laughs> that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Like, Peter's not sure if he's in a dream, if he's having a vision. Like, he's just so confused at what's happening here. Just, and then one miracle after the next. Chains fall off, angel in his prison cell. And then verse 10, when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. This would have been a massive iron gate. And it just opens for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. Tell me God's not in control. Tell me God doesn't have all of this completely, totally under control. Now, I think verse 11 just affirms what we already agree with. Look at this. When Peter came to himself, he said, 
Now, I love that, when he came to himself. Oh, I guess this is real. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Don't you see that in there? That he just, he knew unequivocally that th- though this was his final hour, humanly speaking, God in his control and his sovereignty trumps them all. But, but this is, we would agree, right? Show of hands. Everybody agree that this is his final hour? Yeah? Yep. Okay. It's very clear, I believe. So this was down to the wire. This was the very last minutes of his life. And I just find that so interesting because God so often comes through at the very last minute, doesn't he? Maybe you've heard the phrase, God is never, never late. You hear that? That's true, but listen, God is hardly ever early. <laughs> right? he's, he's got a way of just making us wait. I'm sorry, I'm, you're going to have to keep waiting. Like, no, I'm not ready to come yet. And how often have we been in the position where we're, we're looking at God's timeline and we think God's timeline's way off, don't we? We don't think God actually knows what he's doing sometimes. We're like, God, like, don't you see what I'm going through? Don't you care about me? I mean, my, uh, my daughter, she, she, uh, she's so sweet. She's got such a soft, sensitive heart. She's, you know, eight years old. And she, every time she hears our son, Caleb, who's, you know, 11 months old, crying, like the moment he cries, you gotta go get him. It's like it's this panic. And if we wait more than two seconds, she looks at us and she says, don't you guys love him? (laughs) (laughs) We did it for you too. (gasps) You didn't love me. We think God needs to operate on our timeline. If he doesn't, right, he's not not loving. God, don't you care about me? I mean, look at me, God, I'm crying out to you. I'm I'm broken, I'm depleted, I'm I'm totally desperate. Why won't you do something, God? Because he loves that, That's why. He loves this, he loves loves what's happening. He's looking at you going, yeah, like I'm trying to produce this in you. Like this is what I want for you all the time. Why can't we always have you broken? Why can't we always have you desperate? Why can't we always have you needy? Why can't we always have you crying out to me? You see? Why does it have to be only, only in these desperate situations? You see, this is what I want to produce in you, this greater sense of brokenness independence. That's why, listen, Christian, that's why God will so often show up in the very last hour, in the 11th hour of your life. You just need to expect this. God will show up later than you think he should. But you need to know this. It's, 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 it's never late. I love, uh, look, I'm a Lord of the Rings geek, so... You know, Gandalf's quote, one of my favorite quotes in the movie, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He always shows up precisely when he means to. That's God. He, sh- he knows what he's doing. But we're like God. Like, why not now, God? Listen, we're so, we struggle with this. We're so limited in our perspective, in our knowledge, in our wisdom, and in our control. And we forget that God's got a few more options than we do. God, you need to do this on my timeline. God, and when we think that like, if God doesn't have it done by a certain time, then it's, then it's just gonna be utterly impossible. Like, well, it was God, if this isn't done by tomorrow morning before breakfast, at least before second breakfast, then this is never gonna be accomplished. But God knows this and God knows better than we do. You believe that? He knows better than we do. And we need to, listen, he's much better at controlling the universe than we are, so we need to leave it up to him. So he'll so often wait to the final hour, the last second, and sometimes, I love this in scripture, sometimes he waits even beyond that, doesn't he? Can you think of a few occasions in scripture where God actually waits beyond the last hour? I, I can, well, here's what pops into my mind, John chapter 11. You, you remember the story in John chapter 11 with Lazarus? It's, it's this amazing account of Jesus and his, you know, it's, it's his best, you know, some of his, his best friends, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It says this in verse five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And listen, because he loved them so much, listen to what he does. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Right? He, he hears that Lazarus is on his deathbed. He's about to die. And so what does he do? He stays two days longer where he is. Who does that? Who, really, who does that? Answer, God does. And he does it a lot. He does it a lot. God, God waits to this, waits so that we're kept in this place where it will be totally outside of our control. There's nothing left to do. We don't have any resources to take care of it. In fact, if you, if you follow the story in John chapter 11, you remember 
that both sisters, Martha first comes up to Jesus and says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, that's true, isn't it? I mean, they knew that Jesus could, could heal anybody. They're, they're seen, they've seen his authority and his power over the demonic, over sickness and disease. They know this. And so they're looking at Jesus, and I think sometimes we don't feel the scriptures the way we should. They're looking at Jesus going, Lord, how could you? If you were here, he wouldn't have died. And, and clearly, Mary and Martha had a conversation about this, because in verse 32, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus has this conversation with Martha and he says, he says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You know what her point is? I, I, know, he's, I know we're gonna see him again in heaven. We were just hoping to keep him around here a little bit longer, Jesus. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. And his whole point in this passage in John chapter 11, listen, is to press them past the point where it was humanly possible. And I, I just, you could just jot this down, write this in your Bible. I love this thought. Listen, it's not over, it's never over until Jesus says it's over. It's never over until Jesus says it's over, but we look at the circumstances of our life and everything seems hopeless. It seems like it's beyond repair and it feels like it's our final hour. Maybe you feel like it's the final hour of your marriage. It's crumbling, you're seeing it just fall apart before your eyes. Maybe your children are rebelling and you feel like they're so far gone, they're never going to come to the Lord. They're never gonna turn back and find life in Jesus Christ. Maybe your health is failing. Maybe your finances are depleted. Maybe your world is falling apart. And can I encourage you with this? Nothing is over until Jesus says it's over. God is in control. He is still on his throne right now in your life. He is still on his throne. He's ruling this universe with his feet up. God is still in absolute control. Listen, listen, he's in absolute control even in my weakest hour. Even in my weakest hour. Peter rejoices, he sees the rescuing hand of God. He knows that his life was on the line and then verse 12 says this, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. We're introduced to the, the gospel writer Mark for the first time here. And notice what's happening. He, he goes to this house and what does he find there? There are many gathered together and they were praying. There's a prayer meeting happening at this, what would have been a very large house. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. I love this part of the story. Here's Peter, you have to imagine, I mean, he's just gotten out of prison. I don't know what it's like to get out of prison. I don't know what that would feel like. And if, if you've been to prison and got out, that's like, praise God, we don't judge you for that. There's a sense in which we all know what it's like to be in prison because spiritually speaking, we've all been trapped in prison. And God in his grace, if you know Christ, has set us free. Peter, you have to imagine the scene, right? He's just been miraculously guided through. And I don't know how this all happened. I don't know what it looked like. All I know is the shackles fell off and that, that you know, either doors opened and God supernaturally kept the guards asleep or they walked right through the walls. I don't know how it happened. The gate opens up and then, and I love this, and then immediately the angel left. All of a sudden, Peter realizes what's happened and he realizes he's standing alone in the streets. He not only is supposed to be in prison, he's now considered a fugitive. Like, what do you, what do you begin to think through at this point? Like it was all fine when the angel was here, right? I and mean, I felt pretty comfortable. Now maybe there's a little bit of panic setting in. I gotta, I get, like I'm a fugitive. Maybe I should shave my beard or dye my hair. I don't know, I just gotta get under some shelter. And so he goes to a home he was familiar with and he knocks at the gate. This would have been the outside gate, uh, not the actual door of the house yet, but he's at this outside a gate, this door, and he's, he's knocking, he's probably, you know, he's panting, come on, you gotta let me in. And this little girl, Rhoda, come, comes to the door, she's probably about nine years old, a servant girl would have been about nine years old at this, this time. <laughs> and this, this is great. I can't wait to meet Rhoda. <laughs> she recognizes Peter's voice, and in her joy, she did not open the gate. 
But she ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. I mean, here she is, she's this little girl, she's freaking out, Peter's here, Peter's here. She bolts out and Peter's like, I'm fine, just I'll wait here, just. <laughs> and she gets there, and they said, remember, remember the scene, okay? There's a prayer meeting happening. What do you think they're praying about? Who, who are they praying about? Peter, what are they praying for? Any, any guesses? Get this guy, Lord, you gotta have to imagine, there's this prayer meeting, they're passionately pleading with God, there's one focus for this prayer meeting, it's all about Peter, it's all about rescuing him, it's all about saving him, so their voices are being united, oh God, save Peter, get him out of prison, and here comes Rhoda bursting into the room, he's here! It's amazing, this is an amazing scene, and I look at this, look at their response, and they said to her, you are out of your mind. (laughs) What? This girl's forever devastated. Just crushed. You are out of your mind. Now, now, let me just ask you. On a scale of one to ten, how great is the faith of these people who are praying? And this is weak faith. I mean, they're, 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 right? they're, they're saying with their mouth, but they're not believing with their heart. They're asking God to get Peter out of prison, but they don't really believe it when he does. This is amazing. (laughs) You're out of your mind. But look at this. She kept on insisting. Good for her. She's insisting. She's like, has to keep telling him. I'm telling you, he's at the door. And and they kept saying. So there's this argument. They're arguing with a nine-year-old little girl, right? It is his angel. Now, I don't know about you. This, This is the weirdest part of the whole story. I mean, whether it's Peter or his angel, I'm going to check it out. They're like, nah, if it's just his angel, I'm going to keep praying. What? How in the world do you not go and... But did you notice this? They don't think it's an angel. Just listen, watch how weak their faith is. They don't think it's an angel. They, They think it's whose angel? Peter's angel. You know what that means? They think he's already dead. They think he's already dead. They think that his angel or his ghost is how they kind of would have thought in the, the Jewish context was just coming by to say goodbye or something like that. But don't miss the point here. They did not really believe that God was going to deliver Peter. And you know something? I, I, can, I can so relate to these Christians, can't you? I, I can so relate to these Christians. How many times have I prayed that God would do something but in my heart not really believed he would? I, I, caught, I was studying this passage this week and I caught myself, God rebuked me, doing the very thing that they're doing. I caught myself praying and asking God uh, to show up in a powerful way but in my heart, in the moment, saying in my heart, God, I don't think you're actually gonna do it. How, how can we do things like that? How can we be so weak in our faith? I mean, this is, this is, it's staggering. We look at them and we want to throw stones, but we need to realize that we are so often just like them. We say the words, but the words are empty because our hearts don't really believe that God will answer, don't believe that God will be faithful, don't believe that God will be powerful enough to do it, don't believe that he's really in control. And that's why we're so in need of this reminder that God is in absolute control. But listen, listen how amazing this is. Listen, even though their weakness of faith is evident, God answers. Isn't that awesome? That's the God we serve. Our Father isn't looking at us going, you know, well, if, if, if you don't have enough faith, I'm, I'm just not going to answer. I'm going to leave you to yourself. You can fend for yourself. Now listen, this is, this is the opposite, what we see in this passage, of what the word faith movement teaches. And the word faith movement is a movement, you can find it all over television, all famous you know, preachers, false teachers, who tell people, they convince people, that God will respond to you on the basis of the intensity of your faith. If you just have enough faith, if you just believe enough when you pray, then God will answer. And you know how devastating and destructive and heretical that is? It's unbelievable. It convinces people then, listen, that when God doesn't show up, when God doesn't answer, when God doesn't fix my marriage, or my kids don't come back to Christ, or I'm not healed, it means this, it's your fault. It's your fault. You don't have enough faith. You're not strong enough. And that is absolutely devastating. You need to hate that doctrine. You need to hate that teaching. It is utterly false I love this, this is so sweet because we are so much like these people, we're so weak so often and even in our unbelief, God hears our prayers and he answers. 
Now, faith is important. Listen, I don't want to minimize, I don't want to pendulum swing and say faith's not important. It absolutely is. Listen, but sovereignty supersedes faith, okay? That's comforting, Christian. Sovereignty supersedes faith. One of the greatest stories, I think, that demonstrates this in the New Testament is that, that the passage where, you know, Jesus sends his disciples out to sea and, and it, it gets all rocky or wavy and, and they feel like they're about to die. They probably are about to die. And then they look and they see Jesus walking on the water. Remember that? In Matthew chapter 14, it tells the account of how Peter, I love it, Peter looks out and he sees Jesus and he, and he wants to go to him. So the Lord says, come. Okay? So he gets out of the boat and he walks on water. And we look at that, we read that story like, what faith? I mean, that's amazing faith that he has. But you know the story. Peter gets out onto the water and he begins to, you know, he's, while he's focused at Jesus at first, that's why he's able to walk. He's, he's walking by faith. All of a sudden, he gets distracted by the wind and the waves and the storm that's swirling around him. And so he takes his eyes off of Jesus. And the moment he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he begins to sink into the water. But I love what Matthew says. As he's sinking, listen, as he's sinking, immediately it says, Jesus reaches down and grabs his hand. And don't you, don't you love, listen, how God doesn't just let us sink to the depths? Don't you love how God in his kindness and in his grace reaches down and he grabs us and then he says to him, you, I, I love the order of this, he grabs him before he rebukes him. <laughs> Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Look, faith matters. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We're called to not give up hope, to pray in faith, to believe that God will answer. But our tendency so often is to do just that, to give up hope, to disbelieve that God will be faithful, to disbelieve that God will answer or to think that somehow our prayers are useless and that God really doesn't hear our prayers. It really doesn't matter because God's sovereign. He's going to do what he wants to anyways. And that's, if that's your view of God's sovereignty, you have a skewed view of God's sovereignty. Listen, let me encourage you. Don't lose human responsibility in the sea of God's sovereignty. Don't miss your part in this. And the church in Acts models this faithful leaning into God, calling out to God, praying to God. Even if their faith is little, it's there. And they model something for us. Listen, we need to be able to pray to God, to come to God, even when we don't feel like it, even if we really don't believe he is gonna answer, even if we see no way out. Jesus says it doesn't take much, just the faith of a mustard seed, right? If you struggle with that, Lord, I, I do believe, just help my unbelief. God is listening, church. Prayer works. God is in absolute control, even in our weakest hour. I love this, verse 17. Now, we'll go back to 16. Peter continued knocking. I bet he did. And when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. I bet they were. That must have put them to shame. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Look at the emphasis there. How the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. God is in control even in our weakest hours. What are you facing right now that is well beyond you? Is it possible that God is trying to get your attention? Is it possible that God is trying to call you to a deeper level of trust and dependence upon him? Is it possible that God is trying to break you from your dependence upon the things of this world? Let me urge you, cling to him, call out to him. He is faithful and he is in absolute control. Why is this here? Why is this story here? Well, it falls at a unique place in the life and ministry of the church. The gospel is spreading, the church is advancing. Jesus has sent us into the world. He's called them to get out into the world. That's the theme that we've been hammering upon. But, but listen, the world is not always receptive to our message and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, we know this, that the Bible tells us that they hated him, they'll hate us also. If they persecute him, then they're gonna persecute us. We're called to pick up our cross daily and follow him. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is not to enter into a life of ease, it's to enter into a life of potential suffering for the sake of Christ. 
But as in every area of our lives, when it appears that it is our darkest hour or it feels like it is our final hour or we are in our weakest hour, we need not fear or fret because we believe in the God who is in control. That's why this is here. We don't need to panic. We don't need to be anxious. We need to turn to the one who is sovereign over all things. Every part of our lives, every moment of our existence, he's in absolute control, and it's because he's in control that we can have hope, that we can have confidence, and that we can have courage. It is here that we realize that we need not fear in our darkest hour, we need not despair in our final hour, or we need not flee in our weakest hour. Instead, we turn to the sovereign God of the universe, and we trust him to accomplish in us and through us his perfect plan. Do you trust him today? Is this the God that you love? If you don't know him, if you don't love him, let me encourage you. If you are here and you're thinking through the gospel, you're thinking through your life and you're seeing that God is maybe bringing those two things to an intersection, I want to urge you, would you look and would you turn and would you submit your life to the God who's in control? Our greatest act of recognizing God's sovereignty and control is submitting ourselves to him completely. And he wants to grant you forgiveness today. He wants, to, he wants to tackle your greatest problems and your greatest problem is the problem of your sin. And he's done that by sending his son to die in your place. He rose him from the grave, conquering sin and death so that you might be freed from the chains of sin, set free from the prison of your sin and given life with him. Christian, do you have strength to fight another day? Are you trusting in the God who's in control of your circumstances right now? Are you fretting and panicking? Or are you turning and praying? Are you clinging and crying out? Call out to him with whatever faith you can muster and trust that he will hear and he will answer in his perfect way and in his perfect timing. God, we pray that you would teach us these truths. So many of them, Lord, are so easy for us to adhere to mentally and such a struggle for us to embrace practically. We find ourselves, Lord, giving lip service to your sovereignty while our lives demonstrate that we believe we're ultimately in control. And God, I pray that this morning this passage would be a powerful reminder for some for some, Lord, it would be new revealed truth for their heart that they would today be sitting and soaking in the greatness of your divine sovereignty, your control over all things, and Lord, that they would submit themselves to that. They would find rest in that, that they would, Lord, no longer be anxious or worried, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, God, they would be clinging to you, leaning into you, finding that you are faithful, finding that you are true, finding, Lord, that you will never leave or forsake them. God, you will always, always, always show up exactly when you intend to. You will not forsake us. And for that, Lord, our hearts are humbled and they're grateful. And we want to turn now and respond by giving you the praise that is due your name. Receive it, we pray, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.